Welcome to Takedown Talk, everyone. I'm Bob Matthews, your host, and in this podcast, you get to know some of your favorite wrestlers, coaches, or characters in the sport from both Pennsylvania and New Jersey. And with me today, none other than legendary head coach Dave Kroll. And I know Dave, when you say legendary, doesn't like that. Dave, a very humble guy, and uh, has given a big part of his life to wrestling. And uh, there's so many wrestlers over the years who will attest to the fact that Dave's probably one of the greatest coaches and greatest people they ever met. And uh, Dave, thanks for giving me so much time here today. And Dave and I have been talking before the podcast for like, what, three hours? We <laughs> solved most of the problems in the world, you know. <laughs> yeah. But uh, thanks a lot, Dave, for being here. And, you know, for most people know who you are in and around the Lehigh Valley in Pennsylvania, probably throughout the nation. And you've had a lot of success coaching. I think you're like the seventh winningest coach in Pennsylvania history. And you're coming off a great season, 21-1, you know, EPC championship, this 11 championship, team champ. So it's like at the pinnacle. But you and I were talking before, winning's great. But your philosophy, it's not all about winning, right? It's about creating people who are part of a team and the team and being part of something bigger. That's the most important thing, right? Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> I mean, winning had better not be the most important thing. You know, the same thing as, you know, the dollar shouldn't be the most important thing. You know, we really should have things that have, have much greater worth to them, much greater value and uh, I just, uh, I think, I know a lot of people look at it this way, but I just, I, I look at sports and especially wrestling, because I just think there, there's probably not another sport, or it'd be difficult to find a sport that, that, that takes what it takes and requires what it requires and it has the ups and the downs and the thing that wrestling does. And I even think even there's wrestling uh, references in the Bible, even that it just, there's just so many things about it. But, uh, you know, if, through that, through the vehicle of wrestling or through through the experience of wrestling, it's just there, there's an opportunity there to really develop qualities in people that that will last and be that, that will serve them for a lifetime. And uh, author that I read, I think, calls it, it uses a very good term there. They're called timeless qualities or timeless skills, things that always have been important things that are important right now and things that always will be important and just things like integrity and a work ethic and uh, being dependable and reliable and just all those things that we all need, everybody needs in order to be successful as an adult. Right. And you're talking about loyalty too, you know, loyalty to themselves, loyalty to their teammates, loyalty to the program, their coaches, and that goes a long way too. And then also what they put into it is what they're going to get out of it. Like, you and I touched on it prior to the podcast about, look, you can have all the skills in the world or maybe not as many skills as some of these outstanding wrestlers, but the coach can't turn you into a superstar. That has to come from within. You can just kind of polish that stone and, and help out in the long run, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, ideally that our athletes are, have intrinsic motivation and not extrinsic. So intrinsic is it's coming from inside. It's coming from a love of, of the sport. It's coming from something that you desire to do, whether that's just even accomplishing something for yourself or even better, I think, is when you are doing and you're trying to achieve things for the good of the team. So it's your contribution to the the greater good or the, right. uh, you know, to, to to something that that's bigger than yourself. That again, those things, those all have parallels to to every part of life. You're as soon as you 
enter into the adult world, it's going to be, you know, the greater good is your family, what you contribute to your family or to where you work or to your community and things like that. When you can look at it more from that side, that you have, uh, you are interested in the good of others rather than just the good of yourself. That's really a great, and we even get usually more of ourselves. I mean, we all know that that illustration of the of the little ninety eight pound woman that picks the car off from a kid. <laughs> yeah. They could never do it if they were just going out there and doing something for themselves. But I think it brings out the best in us when we are working for or working toward or, or contributing to the the well being of others. Even so, even uh, the Navy SEALs. So they go through. Unbelievable training, unbelievable, you know, the things that require them is almost, you almost think it's it's impossible they can do. Right past the breaking point. Yep. Absolutely. But this is an interesting thing. They, the, the sole thing is not to necessarily keep them alive. It's to keep the guy on either side of them alive. So it's not just about them. It's not a selfish um, endeavor. It is actually in order to help Again, the greater good to help keep other people alive. I didn't. Wow, getting goosebumps and awesome, stuff like it? that, right? <laughs> but, but then that's the thing. I mean, when you look at wrestling, wrestling people consider an individual sport. It is and it isn't. Right. I mean, you're out there trying to do the best you can when you're going up against an opponent and vice versa. But you're also wrestling for the greater good of the team, as you guys witnessed. Um, you know, several months back at the team dual championships in Hershey when a young man named Blaine Wilson <laughs> hung on to an ankle and didn't give up any back points and allowed you guys to uh, pull out a state championship. And he's a part of that team. You know, Nathan Stefanik, an excellent wrestler. And then, you know, your Andrew Smith and a lot of your young guns, Steve Schott, all these kids who came together as one. You know, do you have a superstar? Yeah. I mean, do we have any Sammy Sassos on the team? Close. You know, but not a Sammy Sasso, but so many great kids who believed in themselves and also believed in one, you know, one another and helped Nazareth win a state championship. And the same thing you saw at states, at the individual states. You know, you guys were back up there. Same reason. Everybody got, you know, pulled together collectively and, you know, you guys were back there on top of that podium. So that's a great and a lot of it stems from your leadership and your philosophy. But. Also, you have great assistant coaches, Joe Pravini, Adam Colombo, who bring different dynamics into the mix, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I just, that is one of the parts I just really love about wrestling is I love the dual meet part of it. It's because, and here's the one thing. So often people say, well, it is an individual sport. I think it might be the most pure team sport that there is because every single guy, all 14 guys on your dual mate team, or even really all 14 guys in a tournament, every single one of them have an equal opportunity to score points for the good of the team. Every single one, and not all sports have that. In football, it's only your quarterback, your running backs, and your receivers. The right. Your guard and tackle, they can't score points, and they, they contribute to the overall well-being. But in wrestling, every single one of those, and we tell our guys, there's actually 12 points up for grabs in each individual bout from the six points you can gain for the team up to the six points you they can, can gain to for their team so that's a 12 point so sometimes we've seen that we've seen where guys have won dual meets for us because they did not get pinned 
or they didn't get majored or, you know, they may have lost the bout, but they actually contributed by saving us three points by not getting pinned. They, they scored three. That's three for the team. My college coach would say, Bob, just go out and stay off your back. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's contributing to the well-being of the team, yeah. you know? And so that's that's a good thing, though. That is, Those are all things that have their parallel in our everyday life and in your adult life, where you are actually, you know, sacrificing for the good of, you know, the good of the, the good of the order, right. the good of the family, the good of the, 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 your business, your company. It's like that piece of the puzzle. You know, you have that, you know, you get a big puzzle, you throw it out on the table, all of a sudden there's that one piece missing. You're like, oh, you can't complete the puzzle. And it's the same thing, you know. I like that analogy. It was a pretty good one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, but it's, the, you know, but it's the truth, right? I mean, you, you, everybody can contribute in some way, shape, or form, no matter how big or how small. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I just, I'm just, I believe that like the culture that you as a coach and that you create and help create on your team is so important. It's to me, it's vital because it's going to, your culture is going to impact every single person, not only the athletes, but the coaches, everything. And when everybody gets along and they're all working toward the same thing, it is a thousand times better than having a bunch of individuals that maybe are great performers or you know they have great talent but they're doing it for themselves and everybody's kind of doing their own thing and people don't get along that is not something i'm interested in at all it's not it's not fun it's not even it's not even uh fulfilling when you have that it's really fulfilling when you get a group of individuals gathered together working toward a a common goal and doing it in a right way a way that Win or lose, you still feel good about that. That's that's my interest. Well, look at the Yankees. Right over the years, the Yankees have had teams of superstars. They didn't win a World Series, and then they had a team that had maybe one or two superstars. But you had some really good ball players, and then some journeyman ball players like the Jimmy Lairitzes and those kinds of people, and they win a championship. You know, those seem to be the teams that the chemistry develops. You know, with teams like that, the everyman teams with a couple of superstars. The chemistry develops, the cut, you know, that, that, that all for one, one for all kind of a thing. And then they go on and win a championship and become very successful. Now for you, you're, when did it start for you, Dave? I mean, I know you grew up in, uh, you know, Northwest Pennsylvania. And when did you get that, that, that love or that, that, that fever or, or catch the fever for wrestling? When did it start for you? Well, in my community, I grew up in Cory, Pennsylvania, District 10 up there, about 30 miles southeast of Erie, uh, right on Route 6 that goes through the top part of the state. Did we go up to Presque Isle State Park? Oh, yeah. When I was when I could drive, that was, it's just like going to the shore. It's, it's great, isn't it's it? It's fresh water. Yep. That's all. Yep. So, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, we, the first opportunity was sixth grade. We wrestled for the YMCA. Um, team or the whole the thing they had they divide everybody into four teams and you wrestled against the other three teams oh, nice. and that was all it was so i think he went through that twice he probably wrestled six times in a year or something like that but it was all self-contained and then uh, there was no such thing as junior high wrestling so you did that in seventh eighth there's sixth seventh and eighth grade and then you could go with the high school team in ninth grade oh okay so yeah that's when i started and um I don't know. So it, it, I've actually had people say, well, what got you into coaching? 
So everybody has their own story, their own, you know, thing. This is a very weird thing, I guess. But there, there was something that just, I think, somehow touched my soul about coaching, even as a relatively young kid. So I always ask, well, who do you think was my favorite football team? Mm-hmm. So don't say people. the Packers. <laughs> it wasn't mm-hmm. the Packers. It was not the Vikings. So you had to rub that in. Didn't you? Yeah, I did, Bob. Because I knew <laughs> that you're a Vikings fan. Yeah. So uh, it's something very weird. And this is probably as an elementary school, at least definitely junior high kid, that I like the Dallas Cowboys. Oh. So that probably hurts your feelings Dave. here. <laughs> But you well, have to think back of who the coach was. Well, just think all the people listening: time. Eagles fans, oh, you know, I know. Giants it's fans. Terrible, I know. But they had a coach back there, a guy named Tom Landry. Oh, he was a great coach. Who was there? Was something I I can't describe it. It was something somehow that I identified with there in that like somehow the way he carried himself the way he was going to do it the right way he was never going to cheat he was a, a i didn't probably fully realize a christian um he but he was also an innovator he they're still doing things today on defense and things that he started that flex remember the flex yes, defense yep. and he did things he was he was willing to try things to go out and try new things and and stuff that combination somehow just stuck with me that and that's and i realized from that point on that i like teams based on their coach if i didn't like the coach i couldn't like the team it was just weird so i didn't follow basketball but i followed football so i liked the cowboys and i know there's obviously a lot of controversy now but you look back in his day i became i was a penn state fan because of joe paterno now obviously we find out he was not perfect but overall, he really cared about the kids on his team. He cared about their education. Yeah, academics. Yep. Yep. He cared about doing, they had a clean cut image. It was, you know, he's going to be a good disciplinarian. And look at the uniforms, right? Very basic. The white with the blue numerals and the blue with the white numeral. I mean, the helmets, not, yeah. a, you know, just that blue stripe. It's stri- kind yep. of plain. Yep. It's not, they didn't put their names on their back. It yep. was not team. a me thing. Yep. It was team was important. So again, there was something that I could identify with there and, and a thing that I liked. So that I just, it's a weird thing, you know, like I'm 66 years old, but I can look back and, and recall so clearly how I viewed that. And so somehow, some way, I think that I knew that, I would be involved in sports for a while. I get to my senior year in high school and you start to think, well, guess I better figure out what am I going to do? I'm going to graduate here in a few months. And it was just kind of, well, we're going to college. I was a first generation college student oh, um, wow. in my family. So no, my parents didn't go to college or nobody else did. That had to be a source of a but, lot of pride for you there. I guess, but that was kind of, I think that was kind of common back then. So my parents were World War II generation. Yeah, people. mine too, yep. yeah. They worked hard for their kids. They wanted their kids yep. to succeed, yep. And we were, so we were what, the baby boomers. And so we were the first kind of college generation people. So all three of my, or I, all three of us kids, I have older sister, younger brother. Uh, we all were college graduates. So I'm thinking, well, what am I going to do? Well, the only thing I've ever done or been interested in is sports. I was never incredibly talented, but I liked football and 
I played football and, and wrestled. And so I just, well, what else can I do with that? Well, I'll be a phys ed teacher. So, oh, is that how that started? Oh. So that's so, you know, I knew I could kind of keep up with the athletic part. So I went to college, went to Lock Haven. That time it was called Lock Haven State College. Now it's obviously Lock Haven University. Yeah. And it was, you know, their nickname is Matt Town USA. So, you know, my, my, the Matt Town tournament. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So my, my high school coach up through my, my freshman, sophomore year, was actually a, a two-time uh, Pennsylvania Conference champion uh, and wrestled at Lock Haven. So he was the one that kind of talked about it, told stories about Lock Haven. So that was just naturally the place that I wanted to go. And uh, so went there and wrestled, you know, from while I was there. And then I coached for a year. My fifth year that I was in Lock Haven, I was assistant coach there and got the job in Easton and, uh, you know, and, Coach Deason, of course, I was assistant a year, head coach for seven years, got out of coaching for actually eight years and then came back in and coached at Wilson. Uh, only had to drive a few blocks, really. I was down at the middle school, teaching phys ed at the middle school in Easton, down on 12th in Northampton and had to go up, what, 22nd in Northampton, yep. I think, or pretty close. Ten to blocks that. up, yeah. yep. So, uh, you know, it's kind of an easy thing for me to get back in. I could still maintain my teaching position and not have to change teaching school. Right. So coached there for 11 years and gosh, I've been now at Nazareth about, uh, I don't know, six, 17 years, 16, 17 years, something like that. So, yeah. Yeah. I want to come back to that too, coaching at Nazareth. For you though, as you're talking about your high school career and your college career, how did you do as a wrestler in high school and college? So back, so this is how long it's been. <laughs> So in my You had to day, wear the leggings. Remember we had to wear the leggings was, back then, yeah, right? Yeah, we wore tights. tights. Absolutely. Yeah, in those days, there was only one class. You didn't have different classes. And each tournament you had to win in order to continue on to the next the, the next weekend. So Right, it wasn't top eight or whatever. You, it was yep. you won it. If you didn't win it, yep. your season is done. So... I was a two-time sectional, so sectionals was like the first step. I, so was, I won sectionals as a junior and a senior, uh, and then I lost at districts both years. Uh, my senior year, I lost a guy named Dan Harrison from General McLean, who actually ended up winning regionals the next weekend and went to states. So he was... Good because there's at that time there's four guys at states. That's yeah, it. How crazy so is that, he was right? A top and then, four yep. guy. He lost to a guy that was had then won his second date guy named Dan Muthler from Jersey Shore. He beat him. He's a returning state champ. And Muthler ended up going to Navy, was NCAA champ as a sophomore. Actually. Oh wow. So yeah. And then when you got to Lock Haven. I know you wrestled 150 pounds, and I gotta yep. give a shout out to our buddy Tom Elling, who you know bleeds Lock Haven, right. Garnet, and you know, and, and was it Garnet in white Garnet or Garnet in gray? gray. Yeah. yeah, like Peberg. Yeah. So you know, Tom Elling just loves Lock Haven. He was a heck of a coach in his day at Lock yeah. Haven High School, right? Yep. Where where yep. where you went? No, went you went to college to there, there, and, and that's you know, right. The, and he was the high school is yeah. just a few blocks down the road. So you knew of him from back then. <laughs> so he'd be really excited about that. Yeah, but back then, right? East Stroudsburg State College, mm -hmm. Lock Haven State College. 
they were a lot of teacher and physical education oh, yeah. colleges, and then you went on there. So how'd you do in college then? I know you wrestled, what, 150 pounds? Yeah, or? 150. I, I actually didn't make the starting lineup until I was a junior. And in those days, you just had four years there. And uh, it's funny. We've t I've talked about it with a lot of coaches. It was more of a developmental. Today, with all the things that are available to kids, you see a lot more instant successes. These high school kids are able to step right into college and can compete right away, especially yep. with the red shirt. Most of them will red shirt, so they're kind of starting out as a sophomore, but it's their right. freshman, first year of eligibility. But just the, the, the level of high school kids is just much higher than it used to be. Oh, there yeah. Was, there was more of a learning curve. You kind of didn't, there's a few that could step right in, like a a Don Roan stepped right in yeah. and was a phenom. But that was actually quite unusual. You would much more likely see the guy who would take him a couple years to kind of get the hang of it. And then, you know, you might start as, as maybe really getting good as a junior, a senior, you know. And so I wasn't a starter until my junior year. Um, Two-time conference champ. Oh, uh, wow. However, I was never, we, in those days, you went from the Pennsylvania Conference Tournament, PSACs and PSACs, and then we qualified for the Nationals through a thing called the Eastern Regional. So it was, it was teams that didn't have, like they weren't in the EIWA, they weren't in the Big Ten, they, they had to qualify through another tournament. So it was called the, the uh, Eastern Regional. Matter of okay. fact, Penn State was in that when, for, I think, for... For a year, maybe I'm trying to think. They may have been, but anyway. Uh, yeah. So, and I never. You had to take top three in that, I think, and I never, never could could place high enough. So I was a a good wrestler. I was a hard worker, uh, but probably not as talented as some other guys. And you know, the talent sometimes wins out. Well, did you, did you wrestle against Gary Kessel back then? Yeah, a couple times. Did you? Several times, yeah. I beat Gary. Did yeah, you really? Yeah. Oh, I'm going to have to He's tease beat him. me, and okay. I've beaten him. We we talk pretty often. Okay. Yeah. I know his father-in-law real well. Oh, yeah. His his father-in-law is just a great... You, you know, he's, he has four time four-time runner-up. Runner-up. Yep. State runner-up. Yep. 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 I thought Zach Horan could fall into that. and be, I think there's been two of them. Zach, if he had the one... His senior year, he yeah. would have fell into that kind of yeah. category. Great kid, too. And, and we were talking earlier about, you know, before the podcast, we were just sitting here chatting and how Zach Karam, you know, what a great story he turned out to be. Yeah. Second, second, second in that senior, finally, you know, yeah. won that state championship. But yeah, Gary Kessel's father-in-law, he's just, he's a character. <laughs> he's just the greatest guy. Yeah. But, um, and he had Pocono Sports Camp. He was yeah. one of the, the, you know, owners of the Pocono Sports Camp that yeah. I went to you know, yeah. back in the day too. And uh, he's still a character. He still goes oh, to yeah. a lot of Lehigh matches and ESU matches. Yeah. And, you know, and we were talking also earlier about the culture. I mean, I wish we would have had the, the, the tape on, you know, when we were talking earlier, <laughs> yeah. that would have been like four hours yeah, long. Exactly. But yeah. That was so enlightening. And I learned so much from that. I told Dave, I said, this has been like the highlight of my summer. <laughs> but um, yeah, so getting back to that, so from the, the PSACs and you won, so you have that experience to draw on. And then you still, back then, did you still have like that coaching philosophy in the back of your head? I really did. College? I really did. So at Lock Haven, it's weird. You look at it now, it's like crazy. But 
We had a head coach, and that was it. Oh, there was real no quick. Sam Corson. Just wanted to make Sam sure we threw Corson, his name out there. Forty Fort. So, yep. So Sam didn't think I forgot about him. Yep. Yep. Sam. We're still going to do that breakfast. We talk because we usually see each other at nationals because he goes. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Yep. And we we just haven't connected. I'm going to do that. We're going to yeah. do that. But uh, but yeah. So I um, uh, it, I there was just something that coaching thing was there. Um, so we only had a head coach there. So I actually, by my senior year, I was team captain. And uh, I did probably was sort of, you look back now, kind of like the old days in the NFL where you had like player coach, you know? Oh, I kind of right. did a lot of coaching. I did pretty much all the demonstrating and, you know, kind of coaching. The yeah, you were the wrestling part. dummy, right? The, co yeah. the coach get down, he clamped down, all of a sudden he hit you with, you know. Yeah, well, in ours, our coach was, he was a heavyweight. So, oh. and so I did the demonstrating. So I was kind of the teacher. I taught the, the, the technique for the most part of our team. So I kind of... Do you think that helped you out a little oh, bit, absolutely. right? absolutely. Oh, yeah. Because you, you learn it better when you teach it. So you can kind of know it, but you really take that next step. And actually, I think probably every coach out there would say, you know what, if I knew back when I was a wrestler, what I know now as a coach, I'd be so much better. And that's probably true of just about everybody. Well, it's funny you said that. I was thinking about on the way over about if I knew now, just from like covering the sport and announcing the sport and, you know, following all the new techniques and coaching philosophies and all these kinds of things and, and how they practice and how they drill... Oh my God, I would have been a national champ, you know, at least three out of four years, you know? So you think about that stuff, right? And it's just amazing. But you know, where wrestling has evolved from, you we are talking about back then, it was kind of one of a couple of sports you played or something that would just occupy your time yeah. where now it's such a specialty yeah. sport. Yeah. I mean, how many kids played peewee football, but then once they got to be in seventh and eighth grade, focused just on wrestling to where now they go to all these tournaments all over the country yeah. throughout the year. And it's just, it's just evolved to such an expert level. It's incredible. Yeah. Really you know, is. so now let, let's talk about, you know, we'll talk about more of your, your coaching and everything else, but for you as a coach, your son, David and Colin, both, you know, great wrestlers and Colin is pursuing, you know, wrestling now in college again, picked it back up after taking some time off in high school to play baseball. But David, he wrestled right through when he was at Easton High School and you were coaching at Nazareth. Yeah. And was it easier to watch your son wrestle at another school? And then when he came to Nazareth, you coached him. Was it tougher when he came and was wrestling for you? I know it's kind of an unfair question, but you know, I put you in a tough position. But as a parent, when you're wrestling yourself, you get nervous and you put some pressure on yourself. But as a parent, you, you know, it's out of your control, so you got to be losing your mind. So was it tougher for you to coach him or was it tougher for you to just watch him? That is actually a really good question. So I think, it, 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 yes and no. So uh, I'll go on it. So when he was wrestling at Easton, so he wrestled all through the Easton system all the way through 10th grade. So actually, when he was a 10th grader, he made the, the varsity team. So he actually competed against Right, right, right. right. So I'm... Weird. I'm, <laughs> I actually had to excuse myself from the coaching chair and go behind the bench. I wouldn't actually coach against him because right. I can't... I can't coach against my own wrestler that I'm coaching yeah, every conflict. day. Yeah, conflict, right, I right. can't coach against my son. So I'd stand behind the thing. My assistant coaches would, would coach him and I would just watch kind right. of as a spectator from behind the bench. 
Um, so that had to be tough. So that was tough. More so just when he was competing against our guys. Okay. And uh, that, that was tough. Um, but I think it's any parent. There's not one parent out there that doesn't say, it is tough watching your kid compete in, in anything because it means a lot. It's yeah. important. And nothing is, is safe. It's, it's anything in a wrestling, anything can go wrong. It doesn't matter how much you're in control. Things can go wrong. You know how much they've put into it. They've sacrificed so much. So there's a lot at stake. It was, it was tough. So that part was tougher. When I started coaching him, that part was not quite as bad because I had more input into it. I had, I was more part of that because I'm now coaching him. So I'm actually contributing somewhat to it. So you feel a little bit more in control because you're in control of the preparation of gotcha. that. So, so now it's more, we're working on things and you're seeing it play out. And now, you know, if, this doesn't work. You can be part of the solution a gotcha. little bit. So that part was better. The part that was tough was, is that he come home. To, everybody else goes home to their own home. He comes home <laughs> to our home. <laughs> I never thought of that. Yeah. So now you're living it day in and day out. That was a way. 24-7. Yeah. That was way harder. Even though he would. So in the off seasons, it was interesting. So I had coached. Uh, while he was in like junior high and uh, I was at uh, uh, Wilson co coaching there. So he would, in the off season, he would come with me to do his off season work in with the, the Wilson wrestlers. So he knew them really, really well because he twice a week, you train with them, train yeah. with them, you know? And even when I got the Nazareth job, he would come up with me and do off season because it's just more, he doesn't have a car. It's just easier to get him the workouts gotcha. there. And I just look at it in the off season, as long as you're working out, it doesn't matter really where you are. So, so that was good. So that those probably made new friends and things like that. So, uh, so, so that part was good, but now you're coming home and you can't escape it. Um, if everything's going right, it's great. If things aren't going well, it can get really tough. So, his junior year, we had a very good team. So this was the 05-06 year. We had a really experienced team. So just, you know, we, we wrestled. So get the example, at, at Christmas time, we're at the Bethlehem Holiday Classic. Um, tough, to really tough tournament, yep. obviously. So uh, of our 14 kids, um, I think only one, maybe two, but I'm thinking maybe only one did not qualify for the second day. It was David, my son, David. So, and he was in a tough weight class, you know, it's, it, it was really good. And uh, he didn't qual. So, and then. Was that 170 back then? He was at 171. 171. Yeah. Okay. And so as the season went on, things started to go downhill a little bit. Okay. And they got worse. And he knew he was, you're not actually getting worse, but you're performing worse. Right. And then it is. starts to get into your and head. Then, right? And the harder you try, the harder it becomes. Yeah. You just. Why is it, right? You know, the harder you try, is it because you're pressing and you're yeah. putting more pressure, external and, and internal pressure on yourself? Yeah, it is. When you're yeah. relaxed, that's why some people do great in, in practice. Because when you're relaxed, you can do anything better. 
Like I always think, you know, we sit there, we watch on TV, we watch, uh, uh, you know, um, Jeopardy or something. We say, oh, I know that answer. Yeah, oh, yeah, well, you're firing them off, right? Yeah, how well would you do if you got <laughs> cameras in your face? You know, millions of people are watching you, and you have to, you know, five seconds to make, you know, That's to get that answer in. Yeah. So under, as we know, under pressure. Anything becomes more difficult. Or the question. You get the question and not the answer. That's, that's it. That's it. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So, so under pressure makes... So, that's a big part of it. That's sports psychology. Some people perform better than others under pressure. Without the pressure, things can change a lot. But under the pressure... I mean, for all his problems, that was the thing with... If you look back in some relatively recent history... What made Tiger Woods such a great golfer? There were a lot of people as good as him, but nobody played as well under pressure yeah, as Tiger Woods yep. would. Unbelievable. So, yeah, some people actually, they exceed their what they've done before under pressure. Michael Jordan. There you right. go. You put him in those positions, those things, when everybody's counting on them, there's a few people that just... Tom Brady. Yeah, they blossom. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing, right? All of a sudden, the stakes yeah. get higher, and they elevate it to you know that 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 level of expertise, whatever, to that next level. It's exactly. incredible. Yep. Probably more often than not, though, is the reverse. Yeah. Is the under pressure? You just watch the World Series. There's probably more errors that happen in the World Series games than any normal game of the thing. It's the tension. The, oh yeah. The harder, the more you want it. You're just not as relaxed. Right, and you're on such a big stage. And then, you know, there are how many different games throughout a regular course of a week or a day. When you're talking a World Series, there's two teams. How many millions of people are watching it? Everything's under scrutiny. The littlest mistake can cost you a game. Yeah. You know, yeah. like Carlos Beltran being a Mets fan <laughs> back against the, uh, the Cardinals, Adam Wainwright. You know, he's up there as a chance to put the Mets ahead and win and then go on and maybe beat Detroit and win a world championship. Wainwright comes out with that hellacious curveball, and it freezes him. He strikes out, and everybody's, oh, man, Beltran stinks. But, I mean, what would you do? I mean, I wouldn't be looking for a curveball. And that was probably the best curveball I've ever seen anybody throw. And, you know, for that, he didn't get it done. It was, oh, he choked under pressure. But you're right. I mean, it's so magnified in a situation like that. It's incredible. And with your son, you're talking Nazareth, you know, a premier wrestling program in Pennsylvania. So... The spotlight's on him. He's the coach's son, so people are expecting even more. Coach's son thing is really tough to handle. You know, everybody else is, you're just a wrestler. He's led. He's got that built-in, we didn't do it, but, you know, just that built-in ex, higher expectations. That's why it's so yeah. I don't want to disappoint my yeah. dad. I don't want to let down my mom. Yeah, yep, exactly. and people asking you, oh, you're going to be a state champ for your dad. You know, the, those kinds of things are just an additional burden that they carry, that it's it's harder to to perform with those. That's why it's always great to be an underdog. Underdogs, it's way easier to perform. Expectations are much lower. It's tough, and yep, and it's tough when the expectations are high. So things got tougher for him that year. Just it got to we could not talk any wrestling at all in our family. It was so he was trying so hard and it just wasn't so your wife would make him great spaghetti dinners because I, <laughs> I know that's her her specialty right she makes those good spaghetti dinners yeah, take yeah, david's and, mind off it. yeah but he was he was cutting some weight so he had to you know oh eat watch everything. that okay yeah, so he got that problem too but then for him it was just kind of one of those cinderella stories he just his junior year just right just it was like the week 
it was like the week before uh, district duels. All of a sudden, and things were going not well at all, but something just, some switch just flipped with him, and all of a sudden, he caught fire, probably unlike any wrestler I've ever had. I, I don't think I've ever had a bigger turnaround in one season as, as, as David had had. Yeah, and then he went on to win, you know, get into the finals and almost won a state championship, yeah. placed second. Yep. So in those days, you got six kids qualified, top six qualified from districts uh, to regionals. We absolutely knew at his weight class, there were six guys that either had or should beat him. So we did not think he was... If I was a betting person, I'm not. If I if I would bet, I would have bet a lot of money. That <laughs> you hate to say it, you bet. But if just from a strictly an objective look at it, that he would not have gotten out of districts. Wow. And because there were some actually some very good kids there, and probably one of our biggest overachieving things that I've seen, he ended up um, winning the district tournament. You know, he beat a couple guys I think during the tournament that he had lost to during the year. And, uh, and then he ends up getting to the finals of the regional tournament, which we were absolutely shocked at. As a matter of fact, <laughs> him winning district, we just figured, you know what? If he would get a real bad flu or cold or something, and we could just it's end okay. it right there, yeah, you're fine. it would be fine. We would have been happy. We would have been thrilled, actually. Then the pressure's just, off the family, yeah, right? Yeah, we would have been just ended right there. Well, he ends up, and this is actually, he had told us later that that was one of his fears, that he would wrestle his whole life and never get to wrestle at states, you know, because oh. of course he'd always come out to states with us, you know, so he's been at the state tournament since he's been, uh, you know, eight months old or whatever. Right. Or a year. You know, he's always been there. And he's been with me, you know, through my whole coaching career and at both schools. So, uh, so he actually gets to the regional finals and now he's going to qualify for states. We're just, so again, if it ended right here, he could be a state qualifier. Right. We would have been just like, you know, still beyond. And, you know, it just is the way things happened. The first match out there, he wrestled a kid from Cumberland Valley that he'd actually beaten earlier in the year. And now he's on a roll. So he's got some confidence going. He beats him. We knew that it was going to be over the next match because there was a, a kid from, uh, gosh, where was he from? Upper, no, Upper Perk maybe. Or a kid that actually wrestled with our club, kind of our off-season club team. That for whatever reason, he was phenomenally good. And we just knew it was over there. But somehow David just... Pulled it out. Yeah, he pulled it out. The other kid started. You could see he was very confident. He knew how easily he was going to win. And then David scored on him. And you could just see the, the air go out of the balloon where the kid... Almost couldn't get up it, it, wow. by the time the third period was around. He just couldn't answer back with anything. And David wins that one. And then he goes into the semis. So now we're actually going to get a medal. It doesn't matter. You can get pinned three times. We don't care. <laughs> you're going to get a medal. And the reason you're saying that is so then your heart's not going through your, you know, beating out of <laughs> your chest because you're so nervous the next match he's got, right? Yeah. So, you know, it's state semifinals, you know, it's just. You know, I still, I get chills thinking about it now. It's just one of those, he's wrestling a kid undefeated, was one of the favorites to win the weight class kid from Western PA. And so we absolutely knew that the, the, the ride was over now, you know. And again, it was one of those, he gets behind early, but then starts coming back. And you can, I think there was a little bit of intrigue with, 
people knowing that this is this kind of Cinderella coach's son, you know, and you could just, well, he's starting to come back now. And the every it sounded like everybody in the arena was watching this match as he's scoring. Uh, well, I remember that match. The, the crowd is yep. just, it's roaring loud. And as as he comes back, like he's good. Now it's the third period. Now he's actually within striking distance. He could win and he's getting a takedown and the kid calls injury time and yep. the whole place is booing. booing. Yep. And, you know, and you could see the kid. It's It's psychologically tough. You know, when you're the favorite... But this guy's coming back on you. You feel tired. And, and the crowd gets the behind crowd, the underdog. Oh, yep. In our case, kind of best case scenario, I feel really, I, I think back, I feel sorry for, for the other kid. You right. know, he was in a tough position. And David scores right at the end to put it into overtime. And overtime, he ends up getting a takedown right off the edge of the mat, right in front of our chairs where we're sitting there to win in overtime. It was... You know, and I know when's your son. It's and I've had some wrestlers that had some very, very dramatic wins and stuff. Yep. But definitely Tyson top, Clump. definitely top three, if yep. not the top one ever. You know, when yep. the blood's there, and to put him in the state finals was like just so far beyond. Two weeks ago, we didn't think we right. thought was the end of the You're road. We're hoping he got sick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, to to do that, so that was just a, a great, great time and you know to when you're when you actually it's great for your son but when you're actually part of coaching him on top of it it's even it's like a, a double bit, a, divin, a double reward yeah, yeah yeah that you just it was a it was just a a, a great great moment in our relationship you know father son oh. relationship and then the next year he had higher expectations but he seemed to be very consistent throughout the year made it back to the state finals and yeah. tough loss in the state finals and finished second again but hey to be a two-time state runner-up, yeah, that's pretty impressive. You know? Yeah, probably if, if right now. If, so if I can if I can say this without getting choked up, it'll be it'll be tough. But probably so we went from the year before one of my all-time you know most elated part to the next year. Um, he he struggled through some things during towards the end of the season, but then like fought through it and was really doing well. And he wrestled in the state finals, a guy named Nate Eaches, who ended up going on to play yep. in the NFL. In the NFL. For the Chiefs. Yeah, fullback. Yeah. And uh, he had beaten him the week before at regionals. Yep. And uh, in David's mind, he just knew he was going to win. You know, like he had, he had beaten a kid from Council Rock in the semis that was uh, a state champ, returning state champ. Oh, yeah, uh, yep. And, uh, you know, he just... He just knew he was going to win, and he got caught in like a five, four, five point move, and he just fought back, but just didn't have the time. Just fell short. Yeah. The part that just uh, <laughs> I think of it now, he comes off the mat and and says to me, and he says, "Dad, I'm sorry." Like, uh, you know, like, uh, yeah, I didn't feel that at all. I knew he wrestled his best, didn't work out, but he felt like he disappointed. Like he let you down. He, you know, like he just. Great heart, you know. David you know, just says, "You made heart. me tear up." Yeah. Now, you know? but yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> I can feel, I can feel the emotion. I can feel, like you said, it was so much went into it, you know. And then he busted, you know, the year before he struggled and turned it around, yeah. and, and the expectations weren't there. All of a sudden, it's like, whoa, 
he's got a silver medal. And then the next year, the expectations on the poor kid were higher. Yeah. And he struggled a little bit. But then he wins so, yeah. regionals. And then he thinks, okay, I'm going to get the state yeah. championship. And then to feel like he left his dad down, I understand. And he was never this great. So his his sophomore year, he, when he wrestled East, and I think he was 17 and 24. So it's not like this guy who's been, you know, I'm a... You know, I'm going to states every year right. and the state, play, you know, like he really Worked came hard, such yeah. a long way in, in those years of him. You know. And then he went on to Penn State and wrestled out there, right? Yep. For, yeah, he, for a couple so he started at Pitt, actually. So he went and to Pitt to wrestle. To and, then, State, yeah. and then Tim Darling, one of our, our former wrestlers, was a good friend of his, was at Penn State at the time. David finished wrestling after his freshman year at Pitt, didn't think he wanted to wrestle anymore. And then... Um, Tim and the staff out there got David to, to, to transfer to Penn State. So he transferred there in, in January of his sophomore year and uh, wrestled that, that, uh, that second semester, but couldn't wrestle in competition. He, he wasn't eligible to, to be on team yet. So uh, wrestled. And then that spring is when Cale Sanderson came uh, to Penn State. So um, then he wrestled for, for Cale for for three years wow. after that. So. so two legends. You get to wrestle for Dave Kroll, your dad, <laughs> and then you get to wrestle for Kale Sanderson. You know, yeah, yeah, that's him. exactly what I was saying. Hey, I put you, hey, yeah, right, I put you right up there. I put you right up there with him. I've interviewed Kale, and, and you know, you're a lot nicer. <laughs> Kale's a nice guy, but he's, he's, he's intimidating. Oh, yeah. You know, you, yeah you, he's quiet, kind of quiet. That too. quiet intimidation, yep. He gives you that look. Like, he furrows his brow and gives you that look, and it's like, I hope I ask him a good question, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, but I understand. So now for you, let's talk about your wife, Jackie, okay? It, it, and I've known you through coaching circles and really just started to, you know, approach you and talk to you over the last year or so. But Jackie, she and I went to high school together and I never put two and two together. And then I remember on Facebook, I saw Jackie Chickarelli Kroll and then I'm looking, I'm like, that's Dave's wife. Are you kidding me? And then I reached out and then we reconnected. So what a small world, huh? That's yeah, really cool. Absolutely. And it really, it was through, you know, again, this, uh, what is it? Seven degrees or six degrees, whatever degrees of separation, you know, in this, in this seven world. degrees of wrestling. There you go. <laughs> yeah. So her first cousin was, is, is Barry Rutt. And so, um, that my neighbor know, yeah dick rutt so barry's uncle dick rutt was easton's first state, state champion champ. uh his dad chubby, chubby was a real good wrestler too and so i coached barry so he grad he was an 81 graduate i coached these i was the head coach there from 77 to 84 so he was one of my wrestlers who i knew their family yeah. very very well but never met jackie of course I had reti retired from coaching, which I thought retired back in after the 84 season. And uh, yeah, so so they actually, uh, Jackie's aunt, Nancy, Nancy Rutt, just mentioned to Jackie one time, well, I heard your te I, you're teaching with this guy, Dave Kroll. And she didn't know who I was at the school. We were right. teaching at the same school. So she just, uh, yeah, she uh, mentioned something to me. And when we came back from, Christmas vacation. I was in the hallway, and she said, "Oh, you coached my cousin Barry, and uh, you know we kind of yeah." But but then I found out that she thought the other physical education teacher was more attractive. <laughs> that, that we found that that's, out today, that's, right? I think so. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, she probably out. got the booby prize on that's this funny. one. But yeah. But you know, you talk about you know what a small world, right? 
So Barry Rutt is my neighbor, and I grew up with Barry and his mom and dad, just great people. And then Barry, who wrestled for you, ends up wrestling against my brother-in-law, Barry Bartek, oh, right, in the right. district final, yeah. and, and Barry beats him. You yeah. know, I mean, talk about a small yeah. and Barry, just been one of the nicest. I just, that family is a great family. Yeah, they yeah. live right in back of me yeah. on Grant Street. And South then he Street. went on to a great, like, refer officiating yep. career. He was yep. one of our, definitely best one officials. of our best officials here yep. for, for years here. So, yeah, he's yeah. really good. Yeah. So now, okay. So for you, you talk about building relationships and the people you've met. If you could pick out, and I know, God, Dave, your list is probably as long as my arm and your arm and all of our arms in the room here. But if you could, a couple people that you've met along the way that really have influenced you as a person, as a man, as a coach, who, who would those be if you could think of one or two? Yeah, I've, I've, had, I've been incredibly blessed so uh you know i i'm a christian i believe that you know things don't happen on by accident i believe there's a plan behind it and i look back at my life and there's no question that god's had a plan in my life and he's just put so many people in my path over the years it's been it's freaky how many people very influential positive people that he has put in that we've intersected with and right. I've been. So I would look at so people that well, people around here may not know, a guy named Dave Caslow was the coach at Phillipsburg Osceola High School for probably like 40 years. We worked camp together every summer. We just it was just one of those bonds, you know, brothers from different mothers, yep. you know, we just we just talked just like we're doing here, like we did this afternoon. That's what we did every single day for six weeks of the wow. of the summer. So he was just lives still in Phillipsburg, Pennsylvania, out in the center part of the state. But he's been he was very influential. Even some a lot of my my coaching things. I was just uh, uh, helping a coach just a couple of days ago, and I I referenced this that he taught me something forty years ago that I still a way of teaching things I still use today. Right. Um, I, I worked at Clarion, so there was a coach there, a legendary college coach, a guy named Bob Bubb, who was in the Hall of Fame. He's great. He was Wade Chalice, uh, Don Roan, uh, uh, Gary Barton was a state champion, a guy named Elbow Simpson. They had a, a string there in the 70s where they had five national champions and very, very respected, respected coach. So, that was where I, we did the camps together. Right. So he was very influential. Um, Pat Santoro is one of my best friends. Um, and we talk all the time. We talk a number of times during the week. We usually meet together every week, once a week. Uh, he's one of my dearest friends. He's, you know, I, there's nobody I respect more in the coaching, in the coaching world than, than Pat Santoro. Um, Jared Spencer, sports psychologist. He brought us into our into our lives yep, back when David was in high school, yep. you know, and he worked through some. So he's helped me immensely with the whole psychology part of of coaching, which is a real significant part of oh my of god coaching. Yeah. Yep. It's, it's huge, and uh, research says that only that eighty five percent of coaches only work in kind of the first dimension. That's the physical part, you know, the, the training part, yep. the whatever. And only 15% or 10%, I think, of coaches ever do anything with any sports psychology. And as we know, it's a, it's a huge part. Like 
psychology is part of everything. Part of, yeah, part of life. And absolutely. So we just like we were talking before, the whole, you know, being able to perform under pressure. And, you know, we're in an epidemic now with young people in um, depression and things like that. That's depression is really high in, in the sports world just because of the pressures that athletes are under today that never used to be true. But in the year 2020, it's never been higher. Right. Uh, they did a did a, a study, this is several years ago, where they said they went to, they uh, interviewed uh, Division One athletes and the percentage was one in 10 athletes, uh, Division One athletes had seriously considered suicide in the last 12 months. Oh my God. That's scary. Wow. Just scary, scary. Well, I guess for some of them, you know, it's all they have. It's, you know, and again, everything's riding on it, and they put everything into it, and their parents have put everything, and just the the expectations, and now with with social media, everything you do is scrutinized under a microscope, and, yep. and you're criticized, and it's it's really tough. Uh, it's tough then, you know, and so that's all part of of that whole sports psychology thing, you know, your emotional well being and, and that. And then also, Dave, you know, being in the middle of a pandemic, there there are no sports. Right. So in terms of activity, in terms of exercise for children, just for pure entertainment, I'm jonesing without baseball. You know, we play <laughs> fantasy baseball. I've done that since 1990. And all of a sudden this year, it's not there. And yeah. it kind of, I don't want to say disrupts your life, but it's a big change, you know. And then football, who knows if there's going to be a football season. Some college programs aren't going to play this year. Yeah. You know, uh, professionally, they're hoping to play, but you never know. And a lot of people rely on that as an escape, yeah. you know, from their everyday everyday life or job or world or whatever. And they don't have that as well. So, yeah, depression's a big part of it. And like you said, especially with sports, doubting yourself, getting into a period where you're like, oh, I'm a great practice wrestler. But you get out in the mat and then you freeze up or you are over intimidated by your opponent. He's more experienced, yeah. he's bigger. So, yeah. Jared's very, very important. Oh, he, he's phenomenal. He, you know, he works with professional sports teams. Work with our sales, works with our sales yeah. staff at the radio station. Yeah. You know, just then, you know, helped tremendously. Yeah. yeah. So, and he, he works with wrestling, college wrestling teams, and he's just been a, a tremendous resource. Uh, I usually see him, you know, we, we meet together in this group of guys uh, uh, usually once a week. Um, actually, in this group, we have we have five guys that meet on on. Usually two Tuesday evenings, and so it's Jared Spencer, uh, Pat Santoro, um, guy named Dave Huber is the he's the owner of uh, Whitehall Door, which is a garage door company up in Whitehall. Uh, he's part of our group, and he was a friend with our fifth member, uh, Matt Millen, who is the former NFL player and. Uh, uh, president of Detroit Lions and so it's us five we talk about it's I'd like to say it's 50 50 50 percent Bible 50 percent sports <laughs> but that would be a good day probably yeah. so 80 20 <laughs> would you say 20 Bible 80 sports yeah and, but sometimes those sessions turn into like five hour sessions you oh, know yeah. so we we end up you know but it's it's actually been really I think I think I speak for the whole small group of guys that it's been Really good for us. We're able to talk out some problems and very some, cathartic just, for you. It right? is cathartic, and and it's it's time that we can actually share things with each other in a safe area. That you're, you know, like take a guy like Pat Centor. If he's got a problem, 
who's he going to tell? You know, like, let's face it. There's things that I tell these guys that I don't tell my wife. Because if I told my wife, I'd afraid she'd go out and try to fix it. You know, and yeah. then we'd both be in trouble. Yeah, because yeah Jackie's pretty fired. She is pretty she fired up. Yeah, pretty fired up and pretty yeah. feisty. So it's been uh, actually, I would. I've actually encouraged a lot of coaches to do that. If you can get a group of guys that you can meet with and talk about things and. It's really a, a, it's a very, great stress reliever. It is. It's very, very healthy for you. Um, you know, like any psychologist would tell somebody that, you know, if you can, that's why there's so many psychologists. You can't even get into a psychologist today. They're booked up because, you know, people need people to tell their problems to, to be able to, to unload this. Well, and when you, when you have a group of guys, you can, you, you trust them, you know, and uh, you can count on them. It's really a, it's a great blessing. I think anybody's like to have that. Okay. Now, this tells me we only have 60 minutes, and this is great. So I'll probably have to end up stopping this and then continuing. <laughs> but before I would do that, if you had to pick, are you a, a sweet eater or are you a salt guy? Do you like Doritos and potato chips, or would you rather have an Oreo or something like that? No, definitely sweet. So uh, ice cream would be my Ooh, yeah. uh, soft spot. <laughs> that, that, I think it's not uncommon actually with wrestlers. I think there's something about being thirsty and hot. It, I, I did ridiculously bad things cutting weight like in my day. Me like, too. Weight cutting was really... Sauna with two wetsuit with two yeah. uh, sweatsuits on, right? You had the rubber suit, and then you had a sweatsuit, then you had another rubber suit, and then you're doing jumping jacks and push-ups in the sauna. I know. It, was, it was really bad. So there's just something about that cold, sweet thing that just has never left me in the last however many years i love i love ice cream oh my gosh i love ice cream all right favorite car if you could have here somebody said dave you know what you've done such a great job here at nazareth and you've been a legendary coach and when you finally retire 10 years from now and they're going to say hey you get to pick out the car of your choice now, i know you can't do that legally but just for fun here what would be the car you'd pick all right so i'm not a car guy so oh, okay we get my wife and I get used cars. Like, we, you know, we'll go, we're not even going to buy the newest car. And then we'll keep it for as long as we can. Until the until, wheels fall off, right? <laughs> yeah. So I'm not a car guy, but I am a motorcycle guy. Oh. So I officially have two Harleys. My a fan tail? Is, is now, so I have a Road King. My one is a Road King. My my oldest son, David's taken over my fat boy that I, gotcha. that I had gotten. So, but I would, I would up definitely upgrade to like a street glide or something like that if I had a, if I had the choice. Yeah. Wow. Awesome. Well, listen, I could go on and on and on like we did three hours before the <laughs> interview, but uh, you know, we're running short here on time. It says 60 minutes. I didn't know that my phone would only go for 60 minute <laughs> interviews, but Dave, thank you so much for spending some time and, you know, Part, imparting your wisdom on me. Like I said, this has been the highlight of my summer. So thank you so much. <laughs> oh, this is, this is fun stuff. This is, this is really fun. Thanks. I really, I really appreciate you uh, doing this. This is good. My pleasure. My pleasure. And thank you very much, Dave, for joining me and his wife, Jackie, for putting up with us over these last couple of hours. And please join me next week. We head outside the circle to learn more about how your favorite wrestlers, coaches, and maybe even some area sports writers roll. I know, thanks so much for listening, everybody. And remember, Never let anyone take you down. So continuing my uh, 
Takedown Talk interview with Coach Dave Kroll, the uh, head coach for Nazareth Wrestling and the legendary coach at Easton, Wilson, and then Nazareth. And as I picked this up, Dave, we talked about Ray Nunnemaker, who was also a legend in uh, Nazareth area sports. And he was just the greatest man and a fantastic coach and a, a tremendous motivator. And I think that you're a lot of Ray Nunnemaker in, in, in a way. Now, when he stepped down in the, I guess it was like 1997, and then it took you like six years before you got back into coaching at Nazareth, how tough would it, would it have been for you to follow right after a guy like Ray Nunnemaker? Yeah, so I really, I've actually told coaches this for timing, actually not just coaching, timing in any job is it's actually everything. pretty darn crucial. Yep. Some of it you don't have control over. You know, it's just, it's the timing thing. For me to follow, so I was coaching actually at Wilson at the time when Ray, so we I competed against Ray for, I start at Wilson 92, so up until 97 we wrestled. That's right, Colonial League, right? Yep, 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 they were in the Colonial League. So, yeah, we wrestled them up until, and I don't know when they went to, they went to that, I forget what the league was there for a while, but anyway... They still wrestled us, even their, his last year or two was not league matches. So, so I don't think I could have followed after. I would not wanted to. Um, that's almost an impossible uh, situation. So, uh, hit one of his assistants, Rex Lutz, took over after him. He From Penarjo, yeah. Yeah. And no, yeah, he lives there now. Yeah. And he his was, son, just a great daughter. I know his daughter, you know. Katie, and then they're just such good people. Yeah, so Rex's older brother, Carl, wrestled with me at Lock Haven University. We were teammates, uh, and they were from Montoursville, which was just right up the road from yep. Lock Haven. And so I knew I knew Rex actually before I came to Lehigh Valley. I got pulled over a couple of times on 80 going through Montoursville. <laughs> Did you? Yeah, yeah back, back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. So um, he had coached. He had coached at Peaberg and then had come and coached the assistant coach at, at Nazareth. And he may have only been there for a year. He may have only been assistant for a year there and then took over as head coach. It was unbelievably unfair and difficult. A lot of pressure. Yeah. He... You just, no matter what, even if you're doing great, they'll, it's just the natural thing. When you have a legend there before, it's, you can never do it as good as they do it. And he was, I, I always said this about um, Ray Nunnemaker. If he had wanted to be mayor, my, my, yep. my sense was he could have just <laughs> called somebody and they would have put him in the next day. Yeah, no know? problem. Yeah, he was just so beloved. So people still talk about him. Dave. All the time. He was 468, 95, and 7. He had only 95 losses in his yeah. career. Yeah. You know, we talk about winning isn't everything, but that's pretty impressive. Well, he, he you was, know? And, and that was, I mean, as successful as he was, that was not even his best thing. Right. He, he tremendous respect from the community, and he was a teacher, a career teacher yeah. at Nazareth. Every student loved him. Oh, my God. Yep. Um, every wrestler loved him. Every parent loved, I loved him. him. Their fans always, yep. loved him. He just... Opposing wrestlers loved yeah, him. Yeah. You know? he, he was just that guy. And they come around every once in a while. But he was truly... He was... Coach, he was head coach for 34 years in the same spot. He really was a true legend of the sport. And certainly 
beloved member of that community. And a great family man. I oh, mean, yeah. and his sons were, had a lot of success on the mat as well, yeah. you know? So yeah, I was just wondering because people refer to you as a, as a legend and you are, and you know, Steve Powell, I consider Steve a legend. Bob Zarbatani, I consider a legend, you know, and it goes on and on and on. Dad Turner, a legend, yeah. you know, back in the Peberg days and so many amazing, and Ray Nunnemaker, just yeah. cream of the crop. But listen to this. The uh, all-time wins leader in Pennsylvania was Carl Schellenbach of Ridley High School. 767 wins. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think he coached for like 45 years yeah. or something. It's like crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. You know, and you're, you're right up there. So like I said before, you're seventh of all time. And you passed Steve Powell not too long ago, and Steve was eighth on that list. So, but for you, you know, I'm talking about wins, but we referred to it earlier. Wins, it's not what it's all about, right? Your coaching philosophy, just some of the simple rules you follow and some of the reasons that you've had the success you've had. We talk about you got to have fun. You win, it's fun. But when you're having fun, you win. It kind of goes hand in hand. But there are some other philosophies that you ascribe to that also are, have been an integral part of your coaching career. Yeah, I just, I, I do think, and really this, I think it's true in business, it's true in anything. Anytime you have an organization, people are working toward a, a goal or working toward to accomplish things. Uh, it's very important, the culture that you create there. And, and, you know, we've all been in good cultures, but probably most of us have all been in bad cultures too. Yep. You know, it's, it's, we've all had good bosses. We've had, you know, intimidating bosses or, or negative bosses or people that, so in a, a really good book, the best coaching book I, I ever, I ever read was a book called uh, Inside Out Coaching, uh, written by a guy named Joe Ehrman. Um, he was uh, NFL, he was in, played in the NFL. And uh, then he ended up becoming, after his time there, he became a co-head coach at a a private school outside of uh, Washington D.C. or outside of Baltimore, maybe it's called the Gilman School. But uh, they—he was featured in the front of uh, Parade Magazine or one of those things. And um, so he—he he gave a terminology to to what this is. So if you're a coach, you are. And but really, this this is true of a parent. It's true of a boss or whatever. You are either a transactional coach or a transformational coach. So the transactional coach is the coach who he, he very motivated to win. He's whatever, but he looks at it this way, that those athletes are actually there to sort of serve him. He, he looks at it as, this is my job to get as much out of each one of these athletes as I can in order to help me win as a coach, which sounds, you know, not too bad. It right. sounds good. The problem when you dig down under that is this is that the transactional coach will use whatever is at his disposal in order to sort of wring out as much from that athlete as possible. Unfortunately, it ends up getting into things like intimidations, threats, um, maybe humiliation, things like that, which we've all had oh, yeah. from coaches, you know, you know, you, what are you, you, you don't care. You're not trying hard enough. And, and I, I look back on my career too. And this is a, a, a phrase that probably rings in my head. Probably most of have heard the coach that says, if you can't get the job done, we'll get somebody else in there that can. So what they're doing, basically they're threatening your position with it. If you game, don't yeah. turn it in, so we're going to 
hang that, hang that sword over your head that if you don't get up there, you know, if you don't get it done, we're going to lop you, you know, we're going to cut your head off yeah. to, to put it in there. Is it a made method of, of um, motivation? Sure, it, it can motivate. However, it's a very negative form of motivation. So that's like, you know, that's like the boss says, if you can't get this done, we'll get you, we'll fire you. And so it's a horrible, I think, a horrible environment to compete under. And so really the transactional coach looks at it as those athletes are here to serve me. Right. That's not, especially... And it's short-term, right? It's more short-term gratification because in the long run, say you have a kid, like we were talking before about kids qualify for scholarships, they get to college, all of a sudden you're using that kind of intimidation. Yeah. After one year, okay, they have a great freshman year, and then the sophomore year is really good, and then after a while they're like, you know what, I'm over this. Yeah. And then it, they, they quit or they just don't put forth that effort anymore because they don't want to put out 110% for somebody who really deep down doesn't appreciate it. Right, right. So that, so I, I'm a firm believer that it's, it's about, and I think a lot of coaches certainly agree that coaching is all about relationships. Yep. And that's leadership. Leadership is, coaching is leadership. leadership well, just about everything, great. Dave, it's about relationships. I mean, my day job is I'm a media marketing specialist for a group of radio stations. And and I'm a better, I'm not like a born salesman, but I'm a relationship builder. Mm -hmm. I do a lot better with people who I build relationships with. And then you build up that trust yeah. and you build up that loyalty yeah. and that satisfaction and that, and, and it goes a long, long way. And then those are people, even after they stop advertising or whatever, you're gonna have them as friends or, or solid acquaintances for the rest of your life. Yeah, so yeah. everything you just said right there is all under the umbrella of relationships. That's what it is, it's all about that. So the leadership style where you got the guy at the top, he's barking down orders and you know threatening and you know, you're, you're, that's a form of leadership, but that it's the, the weakest form of, of, of leadership. Right. So those under you will, bait, the bottom line is they will do the least they have to do for you in order so they will do the bare minimum it's they're true doing, they're not going to run through a wall no, for oh, you not, no, no. no so if you can if it's more if, if there's things more important so if if the athlete as a person is actually way more important than what his performance is or how much he can help me then that is actually a better form of, le of leadership you you get more out of the people they're willing to go above and beyond yeah. what's expected of them um, the environment's better. It's way more positive. People are happy doing what they're doing. Um, if you if you don't win, it's not the end of the world. Everything doesn't fall apart. You still it's just a little blip in the road, but you're, we're still doing our best. Um, you know, it just it, I I also think just that that or that culture of we are going to kind of do it the right way you know we're not going to cut the corners we're not going to we're not going to have to apologize for what we do we're not going to have to you know we want to do it in a way that win or lose you feel good that you at least you know you you, you don't have to be embarrassed about what you do you can feel good about how you went about the process right you walk out with your head held high absolutely the old, you know, give it everything you have, your best effort, 110%, even though there's no such a thing. But, <laughs> you know, you give that 100% effort, Mac. All you ever want out of your your young men or young women is max effort. Give it the best you can. Like with my daughter, 
you know, sometimes she had struggled in school and, you know, she has a learning disability, but we worked with her and helped her. But I would always say, honey, I don't care if you get 90s. Are you working as hard as you can? Are you giving me everything you have? Are you trying? Are you going to explore each resource that's basically presented to you or talking to the teacher? And if your answer is yes, then good girl. You know, whether it's an 82 or a 95, as long as you're giving everything you have. You know, and, and that's what my dad and, and mom instilled in us when we were little. Just try your best. You know, you hear that all the time. Try your best. Yeah. So and and it's actually, it, it's interesting that once you just, so that's focusing on the process of what you're doing. You actually end up performing better than focusing on the outcome or the result. And that's what happens. That's why, um, you know, under, that's the pressure of, you know, I've got to win. It's the, the guys that can actually go out and compete almost as if they don't care who wins ultimately performs better because they're under less pressure. And I know that Kale Sanderson and the Penn State wrestling thing, they've been, you know, there's been a lot of media kind of talking, you know, thing about their guys just going out to have fun. And, right. you know, like... That's their culture, but it's actually been, you watch their guys wrestle and they do wrestle with a freedom that allows them to just do kind of above and beyond as opposed to, you can actually see guys, you can tell that they're afraid to make a mistake. Yeah. They're afraid. They wrestle tight. They wrestle tight. And you can see it. Even the untrained eye can see well, yeah. the, the, the guy who is holding back because he's a afraid it's not going to work out right. and that's not not so good but how many guys Dave have you seen over the years and I've seen who get into the district semifinals right and they're like oh my gosh if I win this match I get into the finals I don't have to worry about going back mm. through the grind you know wrestle backs and things like that and they put so much pressure on themselves they're not wrestling free and easy you know you hear your guys going just let it all hang out let it fly let it and a lot of times guys get into semifinals and they don't they wrestle so conservative because they don't want to make a mistake they wrestle not to lose instead of wrestling to win in fact as you're talking i'm thinking about one of the wrestlers that i covered over the years who always went out there and just let it fly with scott heckman a yeah. banger when scotty would wrestle he's in the state semifinals he's winning eight five it's the beginning of the third period he goes for a hip throw and gets thrown on his back and loses 10-8 and afterwards, I said, Scott, he goes, hey, that's the way I wrestle. Right? <laughs> right? Wouldn't, wouldn't it be nice to have that mindset? Scott, he was unbelievable. He just went out there and just let it fly. Yeah. yeah. You know? That's, I tell you, the one and thing. And Sammy was like that, yeah, too. Yeah. Yeah. When you can just have those, those athletes compete free. And so that's one of the, one of the, ask about things that we do. So I've actually counseled parents. I've talked to parents, our own parents. Um, one of the things we suggest that they change, maybe they're a little bit of a mindset, but definitely change their communication with their athlete. And if there's one thing that their, their athlete, son or daughter wants to hear, um, it's this one phrase from their parents. And there's a lot of possibilities. I usually ask, what's the number one thing they want to hear? Well, this is the number one thing. I love to watch you wrestle. That's a game changer. If you as a if there's a parent out there that's listening and wants to tell their child something that's actually really helpful, it's this. I love to watch you wrestle. And this is why. It's unconditional. It's freeing 
So the child might say, you mean it's not just, well, what about me winning? Oh no, that doesn't really matter. All of a sudden, because children today are very, are under a lot of pressure. They actually want to, they want to please their parents. Yeah, results driven, yeah. Yeah, more than anybody. And that brings pressure. And that makes it actually harder to do the very thing that they want to do the most. Mike, like you said, when David in his senior year, your son, when he lost in the state championship final, he came off the mat and said, Dad, I'm sorry. And it's just like, wow. You know, and that hits right there because, like you said, they want to please their parents. So if if parents, parents want to know what they can do, here's one thing they can do. They can take that pressure of of, um, achievement off from their child and say, you mean, if you can tell them, I love to watch you wrestle, that means whether I win or lose, whether I wrestle well or whether I wrestle terribly, it's actually very freeing to their to their child. They can now go out and now more easily do the thing that they want to do because there's not that pressure of achieving a certain amount. So wow. we talk about, you know, psychology in sports. I mean, that's part of parents too. And I've I've actually had my experience has been the kids that have the hardest uh, the most difficulty handling pressure, the ones that when they're in those pressure maybe don't per- perform so well, almost every one of them, their parents have been overly involved with them. You have put too much pressure on them to perform or achieve over the years. Well, I won't mention any names, but uh, these wrestlers were up in the Monroe County area in the West End, and they were two of the best young wrestlers I've ever seen, natural wrestlers. And their dad put so much pressure on them and they were cutting so much weight, their hair was falling out, they were they developed yeah. like severe anxiety and had to take medication and you know, and I know that he wishes he could go back and change all that, you know, but at the time you're caught up in it, you want your kids to be quote unquote the best they can be, but there's a different way to approach that, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So and- you know, when you think about it, like let's really get down to the brass tacks here. That sports are supposed to be fun, are they not? There, yeah. it shouldn't be a horrible, difficult. Uh, I mean, yes, challenging and stuff, but it should be an enjoy. There should be an enjoyable part of it. Yeah. And usually, when kids quit. When so number one reason why kids quit, like they bunch of reasons down there. This one is like ten times higher than the number two. Number one reason why kids quit. Parental pressure. Even more simply, it's this. They're this not having the fun. It's not fun anymore. That's what it is. It's not fun. So now that that's if you think about it, it's very telling. Because that, it's not this. it's not fun, it's not fun anymore. So that means it used to be fun, and now it's not fun. So that's what my question is, where'd the fun go? Yeah, and why where, isn't it fun? Yeah, where did the fun go? I'd say almost every time, or at least the majority of the time, an adult took the fun out of, out of the sport for them. So they, they just want to go out and compete. They want to, you know, not every kid wants to be a state champion or thinks he can be a stand champion. There's only a 
it's only one two in Pennsylvania, only two per weight every year. Right. You know, yeah. and there's almost 300 AAA schools. There's only one that. So it doesn't mean that the other 299 are less than whatever. They want to have fun. They want to enjoy it. And when you consider the fact that that's by far the number one thing, so. Sometimes as coaches and even as parents, we think they need more. We've got to push them more. That might be just pushing them right out of the sport. We're probably much better off um, allowing them to make that choice, allowing them to develop that motive, that inner motivation that it's not us pushing, but it's them driving themselves. That's what they're going to need later on in life is to drive themselves for excellence oh, yeah. and, and the like. And and we actually but we actually make it we take we, we suck the fun out of the experience for them to the point where some of them will not want to do it anymore. And and statistically of the kids that start wrestling in America, by the time high school rolls around, eighty percent have quit. Wow. That's a lot. That's that's tragic to me because I think there's a lot of great things that you can get through the sport of wrestling if it's done the right way. And if you've quit, you're not getting any of those things. Let me ask you, because I talked to a number of your wrestlers through the years, and they love the way you have them trained throughout the year. So they start to peak, and then you kind of back off a little bit, and then you pick it up again, and then when you start to get to the postseason, you back off a little bit again. Is that a fair assessment of yeah. your coaching philosophy? Because you don't want to keep the pedal in a metal for the whole season because you're going to burn them out. But you kind of ease up a little bit, let them kind of re- – because you know how it is. When you wrestle a full season, yeah. by the end of the season, you're beat up. It's a I marathon. Mean, yeah, it's it not really a 100-meter dash. No. It's a marathon. It, it, it's just, you know, you have hyperextended <laughs> elbow. and I mean, you see the kids coming out of the state tournament – when they're done and they're walking out and they have their, you know, their their bag over their shoulder and they're walking out, their lips swollen, their <laughs> nose is bloody, they have a cut over their eye, they have matte burns, they have a black eye, you know, they have ice on their knee, and I mean, it, it and just that's and that's just the state tournament, but that's got to be basically a culmination of the whole season and all that comes together with that pressure and everything. So for you, when you have it like that ebb and flow throughout the season, is that so they can recover faster? physically and also is it to help them mentally yeah so it's it's a a lot of, of everything okay it's, so that was a long question wasn't so, it? yeah no, that's, that's a legitimate really good question so th- i'll tell you what we this is what we we do as coaches is whatever level we're at we try to do it the way the next level does it in order to be good at our level so case in point if you're a college coach, maybe, I don't know if it happens in college, but uh, if you're a college coach, you're going to do it the way the national freestyle team does it. So if you're a high school coach, you want to train and do things the way a college coach, college team does it. Right. If you're a junior high, the way a high school does it. If you're a youth, the way midgets around here, the way the junior high or the high school, you want to copy the next level up. Unfortunately, sounds good is one of the biggest mistakes that we got you. So what we've done with our youth and, and high school kids is we basically have taken an adult model for sports and athletics and heaped it on the shoulder of high school and below kids, below age group athletes, which is very damaging. 
which is why, in my opinion, that 80% of the kids have quit. They've had it. It's too much. They're not ready for it. It's like I'm going to take a second grader and I'm going to take a um, Harvard level education and figure, well, you know, if second grade's good, gosh, if they do it the way a Harvard senior would do it, that would be better, right? <laughs> right. It's crazy. You're going to read two books tonight, you know? Like, it's not age appropriate. You've got to give, to me, the appropriate level of of working out, of training, of resting, of all those things for what's best for your age level. And, I mean, that's what America does. More is better. Right. Unfortunately, we know that doesn't work. And that's even the workplace. We're finding, okay, I'm already at 99% and they're asking me to do 10% more. You know, there is a point of it's beyond the saturation point. And once you get that, it's into, you know, overtraining, you're going to quit. I don't want, this is too much. I mean, so I look at college athletes, college athletes, if they're, if you're in a division one program, you are already the top 1% of athletes, both physically and mentally, emotionally. I was division three, so that what's that made me thirty per top thirty <laughs> percent. Well, if you're a, if you're a college wrestler, though, that's still way above. You're still in the top what less than ten percent because okay. there's not that much. But if you're a division one wrestler, when you think about it, there's what seventy eight teams, I think. I know, out there, and now Stanford like and Old Dominion just did right, away with their programs. Yeah. Left down. So when you think about it. 125 pounders, there's a little over 70 of those in the entire country. There's what? 70, 770 Division One. if everybody's got a full team, right. starters in the country. That's not very, I mean, wow. that's not many. That's that's a pretty small group of, of people. I mean, there's way more NFL players than that. There's Well, and look at, look at how many <laughs> Pennsylvania, when you go to the state yeah. tournament, you have that 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 numeric up there that shows you, you know, whatever it was, fourteen hundred and some wrestlers down set, and then it did down to just, you know, yeah, one. You know, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just amazing. It's ridiculous. Or twenty eight, and then down to fourteen, and then down to you know whatever. But, and speaking of that, what do you think about the weight? You know, the weight class reduction going from fourteen weight classes, and it's probably going to be approved on the third reading coming up soon with the PIAA down to 13 weight classes. It, you're, you're getting rid of one participant, which I think kind of hurts the sport. Right. What are your feelings on that? Well, I'm dead set against it. Um, I think anything that, that is going to re, um, reduce the result number. in decreased participation is an unbelievably bad thing to do. That's like yep. saying we're going to have Let's do something where fewer kids go to college. Let's let's do something where fewer kids graduate from high school. I mean, it's to me, it's ridiculous. Uh, their thoughts, I think, are reducing number of forfeits in dual meets. That I get. Doing it by reducing weight classes is a terrible way of reducing. Now, there are way way easier, better, more positive ways to reduce forfeits in dual meets than cutting a weight class. Well, yeah, and they're cutting the, the lightest weight class where you have a lot of the kids who are starting out in wrestling, your freshmen, sophomores, a lot of them are smaller, and I was a former lightweight. And to see, you know, the, the lightest weight class get cut out, that blows an, an opportunity for the younger, lighter kids right out the window, and it makes them go, well, hey, 
And I, I can't wrestle then for two years because I'm not going to be able to put on those extra, you know, five or ten pounds or whatever it is. And I just didn't understand the whole philosophy. Yeah, so that, that was kind of my response to, um, I think, what, Brad Wilson, I think, did, a, did an article on that. Great and I article. Said, yeah. And I just said, if you can show me that cutting a weight class will have more kids wrestling, I'll be all for it. But I can't, in the wildest stretch of my imagination, think that there's going to be more kids wrestling as a result of this. Obviously, less opportunities are going to mean fewer kids wrestling. So. And it's discriminatory against the lighter, the lighter, smaller kids, yeah. the lighter weights. You know, we do the Valley Elementary Wrestling League tournament. You have a lot of the, you know, you jump up and it's 95, 100, 105, 120, 160. But you have 46 pounds. And for I'm going to give you a, a, a name, right? Kale McIntyre. Yep. Here's a young guy who won six Valley Elementary Wrestling League championships, right? And he goes to Becca, and he has trouble making 106 pounds, right? So now, all of a sudden, you're going to reduce that and get rid of that. So what's poor Kale going to do? You know, he's going to have to gain weight. And if he doesn't gain weight, he gets penalized, you know? And it's a shame. Yeah. They, so they did a... Uh, I think they did... Somebody did some kind of a... You know, data thing. How many national NCA champions had wrestled 106 during their um, during their high Career, school careers? Right. Like it was like 40 percent of them, or something wow. really, really high number of kids that had wrestled 106 at some point. Right, and their, you know how it ninth is. Ninth grade kids are gross for exactly. You know, I yep. mean. I didn't grow till after I got out of high school, but most kids grow when they're in high school. So right. you have that growth spurt and then you're penalizing the kids. Yeah. So, you know, the third reading coming up and I think it's going to be approved. And I agree with you. Yeah. I just don't think it's. Smart. Yeah, I just think there's there's other strategies to use that are way, way, in my opinion, just way, way like what? better. So this this is one of the things I would do. So if, if you're going to reduce what you want to do is you want to make make the wrestling so more kids are going to not only come out for the sport, but stay out for the sport. So this is what happens. And this is one of my pet peeves is that there's nothing in wrestling that encourages a senior on your team who's not a starter to stay out for the team. So in football, he has a chance of getting in the game sometime. In wrestling, you can't substitute. You can't have your starter wrestle the first period and put somebody right. else in. It's your starting lineup is your starting lineup, and that's who is, is going to be in there. And it's kind of unfair for a kid who has made the starting lineup to pull him out. To, and I will do that at times, but it, it's, a, it's, a tough, it's a tough call to do that because he is your starter. So this – and there are – a number of states that do this. If you would ask any coach in these other states that have this other uh, thing, you would say they would absolutely tell you this is, would be the last thing we would ever want to get rid of is allowing more than one um, entrant in the postseason tournaments. So similar to swimming, where you don't have just one 50-meter, one 100-meter, one butterfly, one diver you're allowed more than one participant in track and field. You see all the time in oh, the yeah. state track yep. meet, they'll have two competitors from the same school in the finals. Yep. That, that happened. I've seen so many, like two shot putters. If that was wrestling rules, one of those guys would be sitting home watching that on TV. Well, when I, when I ran track my senior year, we in districts, Palmerton dominated. 
right? And I remember I was a long jumper. Palmerton had three guys who I think it was first, second, and fourth. I mean, and three guys in, you know, in the district right. final. It, 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 but you're right. I see what you're saying. So, so in wrestling, would you say if they have two guys at a weight, two guys at a weight? Absolutely. And that's what they do in a number of states uh, around the country is you're huh. allowed to enter more than one guy. Oh, I like that. So, oh, yeah. So I, I, I'm absolutely sure we would have, you would average on, just, just take an average across the state. You'd have one to two to three more kids that would either that would come out and stay out. For yeah, because they'd have a chance to, they to compete. Know, same thing in basketball. Same thing in football. Same thing in size. Is even though yeah. I'm not a full time starter, I have a chance to get in. And they would stay out the whole year, knowing they have a chance to wrestle in that postseason. Hmm. Almost. I like that. And it's really it's an investment. Of one round of a tournament, of one tournament, of an entire year, so maybe you have to start districts at one o'clock on Friday afternoon rather than five o'clock. Right. So I think it would change kids' lives. That's one of my and then you would increase participation. You would increase, so you'd have more kids now on your JV team. You you would have fewer forfeits because a lot of forfeits are. We've had that all the time. Kid quits the team, and then a kid gets hurt there later on right. in the year, yep. and you're forfeiting now. And if that kid had stayed out, he would have gotten your spot. Yep. That happens a lot. So, yeah, that would be a huge thing. I've had Sean Pearson, state champion a couple years ago for me, his freshman year. He got beat out by the for the team, and he was one of our highest state-ranked kids. But he got beat out because... Tyson Klump dropped, dropped down, down to, to his weight class. So he's out of, of the tournament. Uh, we've had several of those. One, one of really good Jake Dune this year, freshman. Oh, great what a great freshman kid. of mine. Yep. 113, really tough, really, really good. He got beat out by a Andrew's, starter. That, that, Andrew uh, dropped down, right? Andrew dropped to, to 120, and Andreo Farina dropped, dropped down from class. there. Yep. Yeah. So it's not fair, just like those those long jumpers. It's not it's not the fault of those second, third, and fourth kid who is really good that they have one kid better than them in a school, so they don't get to compete. They should get a chance to compete like yeah, you know, like anybody else. Huh? You know, and you wonder, Dave. And so many coaches here in Pennsylvania probably share your same philosophy and thought process. But the PIAA apparently is like, well, we're going to do what we think is best, and we're not going to heed these recommendations from the coaches, which yeah. kind of bums me out. Well, it's 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 the same old story. You know, we've always done it this way, or we've never done it this way. To me, two of the worst reasons to, <laughs> well, you know, to do anything. And a lot of people are afraid to change. It is. But change yeah. can be good. Can. You know, sometimes not, but most of the time it's it's usually beneficial. Like, look at... I consider myself a dinosaur back in the day when it came to computers, and I was kind of like, ah. And then once you get into it, it helped, you know, I, I embraced change eventually and thought, okay. And then really come a long way over the last, what, 15 years when it came to computers, yeah. but they intimidated the daylights out of me back in the day. Absolutely. You know? All right. So now you were talking before about three things that you want people to focus on when they come into a wrestling room. Right? Okay. And you say, you know, one thing is a kid comes in, you smile. Yeah. And so, make them feel good. Yeah. Or so, her feel good. So it should be a positive, uplifting, um, enjoyable 
part. Now, there's the parts of any practice, no matter what sport you're in, it's hard, it's difficult. But uh, I, I really believe that your your overall the just the atmosphere is a positive, uplifting, fun. Coach likes being there. I don't think that the coach should come in every day with his game face on. He looks like he's mad at the world and he's like everybody's, you know, that the athletes are going, well, what you going to yell at us about today? And he always seems angry at me. Like I've said that all the time. If you get somebody that would come from another planet and come down and either watch a practice or watch a competition and they would probably say, What's that guy on the sidelines so angry about? Why does he hate the guy that he's coaching out there? He he, he actually looks that way. And I know coaches can be frustrated and things like that, but it's just, I always think of it this way. Like, who would you rather work for? If you have a job, do you want to work for some guy that's just angry, ready to bite your head off, that doesn't have anything positive to say, just picks out all your negative things. Nobody wants to work for that, under that. And guess what? None of those kids want to wrestle for a coach like that either. Right. And you can find, you know, at least one good thing that every kid, boy or girl, does well. You know, Absolutely. hey, that was a great that was a great sit-out or a nice single leg or great ankle pick or, hey, I like the way you, you did the slide by, things like that. Or that was a tremendous scramble yeah. where, yeah, you can pick out all the stuff. Oh, you didn't control the wrist. Or you didn't. What's the matter? Didn't I tell you a hundred yeah. times? Haven't we worked on that? What's the matter with you? Are you stupid? You know, like, so yeah. that's the transact. That's the example of the yeah. transactional coach as opposed to the, transform- the, the transformational coach who wants to win just as bad as the other one. Only he just looks at his role slightly differently that, yeah, we're trying to win, but also it's very, very important that can I contribute to the transformation of these athletes under my control into a better version of themselves than, than what they are? So are they growing? Are they not just as an athlete, but as a person? Are they developing skills and qualities that they're going to need later on in life that's, whether they know it or not, are going to be way more important than how good of a wrestler or football player or track athlete. Those things, you know, you're an athlete for a few years. You're a human being for like 85 or 90. Well, like you were saying before, when you talk to the kids about their lives going forward and, you know, they're a freshman or sophomore in high school and you, you compare it to your analogy was a book, think of, you know, these as chapters in your book. What do you want your book to look like in chapter 35 as opposed to now in chapter seven or eight? Right. You know, and like you said, build for the long term and the long haul. And what you're doing, you're building better young men and women to be able to handle adversity. I mean, not everybody can win. How do they react after a loss? How does a coach handle it after a loss? What do they do? Do they go back and teach and say, oh, hey, if you would have done this, maybe we'd have a different outcome instead of going, you know what, you should have. But I, I get what you're saying. Yeah. I, I, so I like to read books on, you know, coaching on you know, leadership on how to be successful, all those kinds of things. So I have yet to read one account of anybody that was successful in their life who said, I'm a success today because everything in my life went perfectly. There's not one on the planet. Actually, the reverse is true. What you find is almost everyone that is successful will attribute their success to actually a really difficult time, negative like, experience, almost yeah. like a T in the road. Like this is, you know, this is this is a thing that, that changed my life. It was negative at the time, 
but it has changed Turned changed my life into a positive for a much better yeah much better so yeah that's important that's important for kids to know to understand that just because things go wrong today it's just part of it's part of the process of your your learning actually training itself physical training is actually destructive to the body it breaks down muscle fibers you think it's in the when you rest and sleep that those destruct it repairs yeah. itself not back to what it was, but hopefully back to a little bit stronger version yep. of what it was, and that's just progressive training. So, but the pro the, the initial process is actually destructive, but you need the destructive to help to 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 rebuild. Yeah, to do the constructive part of the whole process. Well, most of the wrestlers you know that I've interviewed with these podcasts, which oh my gosh, they're just so much fun all told me that they they've over the years they've learned more sometimes from some of the losses oh, and some of the mistakes than some of the wins and big wins yeah you know so we will do things in our practice um at the end of our practices we'll do something that's either now you don't have to give away trade secrets no that's okay no no if i can if anybody can be you know can help be help from this i i've shared this with anybody um so we do something every day that, that either builds your culture, that is, is character building, is something that is beyond just the wrestling mat. So one of the things we'll do is um, it's called defining moment. So we'll, we'll maybe, uh, if we had practice today, at the end of practice, we, I'd pick out like four guys. And what you're going to do is you're going to tell us all on the team what your defining moment is. So I, first I define a defining moment, right. which is, you know, something in your life that happened to you that changed the course of your life for the better. Right. Well, it's a really great thing. Number one, you learn a lot about the kids. You know, you learn about things you would not have known otherwise. Right. The other kids learn about each about other. Other teammates, like, yeah. Yeah, things that, that have happened in their lives. Um, some of them are actually gut-wrenching. Some of them really, really oh. challenging things. Our coaches do it, too. All of our coaching staff does it. Then we'll do like four a day until we get through the whole team. A couple things it does. Number one is it's actually cathartic. So it's a, it's a chance of kids to share, of all of us, even adults, to share those sometimes very painful things in our lives. It's healthy to get them out. That's what happens with people is you hold them in and they build up and they- Starts you, to eat, eat exactly. at you, yep. So by 10, so that's number one. Number two, the actual, the, the, the athlete or coach that's given their defining moment actually can, maybe they've never really thought about it before. Now they're actually processing this, that this negative thing actually was not just, this negative wasn't bad, this negative was good for me. A stepping stone, it right? It was exactly right. It actually helped me become who I am today. Now, the kids don't have the one that our coaches have had some really significant ones. I've shared a couple with me that are, you know, they're actual very painful times in my life. Oh but it helped to make me who I am today. So they recognize it themselves, but then as they are hearing the whole team, that can actually get cemented into them. Right, because like, then they're what? like, oh, I don't have it as bad as I thought. That's exactly, and you know what? That's the same story with everybody, that the negative is not the end of the road. It's actually just a part of the process, right. an actual an important part of the process. So it's actually helped me later on in the life. There's been times when our kids have 
you know, been disappointed. If anybody at Russell is going to be disappointed deeply at some point in their life. That was most of my career. (laughs) There you go. That's it. So like the kid that's winning and gets pinned or he's favored to win and doesn't, or he's just, you know, heartbroken. And we, we see these all, I'll just remind him. I'll just say, I say, Hey, maybe this is your defining moment. So my, my friend, Jared Spencer, Dr. Jared Spencer would say, what I did was I just, I reframed this event. It's the event. It is the event. They look at like, my life is over. I stink. I'm terrible. That's how they're framing this event. I just helped them reframe it. They're looking at the exact same event and said, this event's not the end of my life. This might be the but first the, the step springboard. in the best yep. part of my life. Yep. That's a way better way of looking at the events of your life. That it's not your value, your worth, and your future is not, is not all wrapped up in this event that just happened. It's much of it is what you make of it from here. And like I said before, like, you know, we all know that the people that are most successful are the ones that have used their most difficult things for a positive. And we, this is one of the things our kids know all the time is we'll tell them that your success in wrestling and more importantly in life is not dependent on everything going your way. It will be definitely dependent on what do you do when it doesn't go your way. That's what's going to make you successful or not. It's going to be, how do you handle the not going your way? Adversity. And we all have, there's, we all have plenty of them in our families, in our personal lives, in our professional lives. Every single day we have a negative, you know, what do we do about it? Okay. So unfortunately there, you know, in today's culture, there's so many that, uh, people, parents, whatever, that want to make their life, their child's life, a Disney experience. That it's just all fun. Everything's good. Even if it looks dangerous, it's not dangerous. It's only, you'll be fine. And if something negative creeps in, they shield their kids from the negative or the consequences of the negative. To me, I believe it's very important. I I believe in more of a... uh, you know, free range parenting, for lack of a right. better term, you, you allow your kids to fall down and skin their knees and, and those things. And, and you allow them to not do their homework or not bring in their assignment. And they, they pay a consequence. It's not a life ending consequence, but that's how, that's how you and I learned oh, yeah. to do things better. We it's messed a lot. up. Yep. Yeah, we messed up. But those mess ups were really, really important for who we became, how we learned not to mess up later on in life. Yeah. And, and you know, you were talking, and then we'll wrap this one up. This is awesome. So this will be a two-part Dave Kroll <laughs> series. Okay? But we can you, bore them for two hours. Yeah, there, no, 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 it's fun. It's fun. But, but so you were talking about the pyramid, the way your coaching style is, it's more of an upside down pyramid when you're at the bottom supporting everybody on top of you instead of you at the top just raining down on everybody underneath. Yeah, I mean, we. I'm, believe me, I'm far from perfect. My wife would be the first one to say that I'm far oh, from no, perfect. Oh, you no, know, but she's perfect. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> exactly. My wife's perfect. <laughs> but yeah, it, it's just, it's, you know, the, the top-down style of coaching or leadership is 
it's a, it's a, a model, but it's a, a weak model. It's not a good, it, it, you're way better when you are kind of, you, you flip that pyramid upside down. The leader is kind of at the bottom supporting and helping those who are kind of below him, but now you, you consider them above you. So we, we say every year, when we have a staff meeting, we talk about all that every year. Um, and my coach, I said, we really have one job. Our job is this, to help these kids get what they want. Very simply, to help them get what they want. So how do we help them? And maybe even get some things they don't realize, right. like develop some things. But, you know, helping is going to be better work ethic, you know, getting along with people, get, you know, developing a culture, you know, caring about others uh, above myself, being willing to sacrifice for the good of the, the group. So, like, we never have. There's times you have to move kids from one way, their ideal weight class, the one that's not ideal for them, for the good of the team. We... Where you bump people up or you bump exactly. the whole lineup so down. So it might not be good for the one kid, but it's good, but it's for, good the for the team. Yep. That is something that has to be taught because we are born selfish. There's there's not one child that's not born 100% selfish. The, the, the one month old does not care how much sleep his parent gets. <laughs> he knows or she knows one thing. Right. I'm hungry and I need change. Yeah, feed me. Or something hurts. Right. I don't care about anything else. So it's 100% selfish. We need to, as human beings, as young people, whatever, develop the fact that I am not the number one in this universe. The universe does not revolve around me. And I always use it this way. I'll tell my kids, who do you want to marry? Somebody that is completely focused on themselves selfishly or the one who cares more about someone else? Or you have a business, who are you going to hire? Someone who only cares about themselves or one who cares about the good of the team and the good of the and So the when you start to put it that way, those things start to make a little sense. Because we all, in defense of people, we're all born selfish. We all are selfish down deep inside. And we just need, we need for the good, not only of others, but actually the good of ourselves. We're always happier when we give. I use this example at times. In, in Christmas, when you were six years old, what did you care about at Christmas? Presents. You getting presents. When you're 50 years old, what do you care about? Giving. Exactly. Seeing the, you know, the light in, it, the, in your child's eyes or your, or your grandchild's eyes. Exactly. And, wow, you know. If I can bring joy to someone else, it is a hundred times more value more valuable than getting something myself. It, it, it's funny. It's, I mean, it, it's so true. And you look back at how that shift and where it shifts. It's like, listen, I'm not the richest man. I mean, I could always use more money and more security going forward financially and stuff. But I got everything I need. I got a great wife. I got two kids. I'm very proud of They're healthy. Thank God for the most part. You know, and, and you know, I have a car that runs. I mean, I have a house <laughs> that doesn't have a roof that leaks because we had a replace that a couple of years ago <laughs> but you know it's one of those things where i don't need much more and i have you know people who love me and friends who i care about and who care about me and i have a good job and you know been able to meet so many wonderful people who've influenced me over the years and hopefully vice versa that's all i need and you're right so then you turn around and it makes you feel most of the time better it is. when you're giving exactly. than when you're receiving i feel guilty sometimes when people are giving me stuff right, right. you know and i feel better I, now, here's the thing. If I win the lottery, and I know everybody says this, but if, if I would win the lottery or, or even or even 
win, you know, five grand somewhere. Yeah. I'd keep a grand and I would give the other money to help out, you know, and I know it sounds, and I'm not trying to, you know, put myself up there on a soapbox, but I look at me, but I'm serious. I would give money to the pantries, the food pantries who are struggling or somebody who needed help with COVID relief or somebody who may have lost their job. Because you know what? That's what it's all about when it comes down to, and you were talking about Christian values and the sure. Bible earlier and stuff. That's what exactly. it's all about, yeah. you know? Yeah. And you really should be consent. Really, I've found that the, the principles I found in the Bible, like it's like the best coaching book out there because those things are all 100% yeah. completely um, in step with good leadership, with the, the way it's caring about other people. It's, I'm not, again, I'm not the center of the universe. You know, there are things more important than me getting what I want. Right. And, and it would be nice now in this culture and during these difficult oh, and trying times, if people ascribe to that philosophy about, hey, let's get, and a lot of people do, but I think a lot more people need to help others, reach mm -hmm. out, help others. Let's not look at color or race or financial background or just just let's try to and i know it's an overused term but let's just all try to get along you know and just treat everybody equally in a in a perfect world i guess but treat everybody equally and try to help others who are less fortunate and try to help people and not have it always be about me 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 and unfortunately that's what we're seeing now over these last many years you know people are looking at just that what can you do for me or what can I do for me yeah. as opposed yeah. to and that's the culture we live in so they're they're getting that so that that's almost being drummed in you know, you look out for number one you know nobody else is gonna go out yeah. to, that's a You're dangerous right. it's a dangerous it sounds good on the outside but you know what in practicality it it, it destroys organizations it destroys relationships yeah. big time but there are, the, the one thing I'll tell you, we were really encouraged um, this past year. Um, maybe some, some, a lot of people know about it, but uh, one of our wrestlers, uh, Deshaun Farber, had a fire. Yep. His, his house burned down. Yep. Lost everything. His house. The amount of the people that came out that, that gave was really, it, 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 re, it returned my faith. In right. It, it restores your faith in did. humanity, right? It, yep. The people, it was really, really encouraging. We had a coach from, I think it was Central Catholic, a different sport. I think he was, was he the volleyball coach? No, I guess. Maybe the soccer coach. Maybe the soccer. That they collected money for a, 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 a young athlete that they did not know even at all. Know. It yep. wasn't even their sport. And they collected money and came and, and gave us a check for, you know, it was a, a sizable check. It was, well, that was really, really, so there are people doing some good well, things yeah. out there. Yeah, I didn't want to generalize, but yeah, I mean, we need to have even more people do yep, good things. Absolutely. And then maybe we don't have the, the struggles and everything else that we're dealing with now. And I think, you know, Dave, we were talking before, and you've had, had you know, me especially, I've had a great afternoon talking with you and sharing life philosophies and values and stuff. But it would be nice if people would engage in constructive conversation and dialogue and talk about why are we having these problems? What can we do? Not just go out and burn and riot and lose. And, you know, protests are good and, and they serve a purpose. But I think it's time that we sit down and try to develop meaningful conversations with the people who matter and the people who can help you know, with the change, and that's government leaders and people who are head of the towns and cities and municipalities and 
states and in, in, in this country and maybe make a difference. But I think yeah. it starts with like each and every one of us yeah. Yeah. can make a difference, right? Yeah, it really is. Per if you come down, it really is personal. We can talk all we want about, you know, organizations and politics and all that. But it really is. It comes down to what do you believe as a person? Uh, what what standards do you hold for yourself? What what is your level of integrity? Um, just like we got just got done talking about, am I selfish? Is it all about me, or is it about other people? Those are all those are all things that we are left with. We can we can say all we want. We can get into groups and and but that's easy, you know. That's but that's, it all boils down to us. It right? does come to an individual choice that we all make, and you know what? I just. You know, again, I, I, I like to, I'm going to believe what the Bible says. It's going to get weak. We can't stand before God or, or we can say we do it, but we can't, we can't blame it on somebody else. We can't right. say, well, it wasn't really my fault. Somebody else right. made me do well, it. It's kind of like wrestling. You know, the only people you it can is. blame are either yourself or the referee, <laughs> you know, the official, yeah. you blame the official, you know, oh, if, if he wouldn't have done that, I had to take down, but he didn't give me it. Well, my coach would always say, you know what? If you're winning by six or seven points, you don't have to worry about that takedown being the difference, you know? And it's true. It, it all falls back. It's funny. You know, when you look at the the big picture, it all does fall back on each yeah. and every one of us. Yeah, that's actually, that's one of the, one of the suggestions I give for parents is when, if your son doesn't win or your daughter, don't make excuses for them when they come home because that... That comes natural to us. Yep. We all want to make excuses. Oh my God. When I was it younger, I made all kinds of excuses exactly. for why a relationship broke off <laughs> exactly. or why, or why, you know, we did this or did that or, yep. yep. Yeah. And oh. that's not good for them. Okay. It, they might not want to hear it, but just like you said, that's, you cannot, you're, you, no, you can't, you, everybody can. You should, should not, should not yep. blame someone else for things not working out. You, when you can learn, and again, it's a process, it's a learning process, and it's a maturing process, right. but it's much like the, when you're young, you just want to get presents, and eventually you mature to the fact where, now it's not about me, it's what can I do for someone else? That's maturing, that's maturity, that's, that's growing up, that's getting That that's what a grown-up does, is he takes responsibility for himself, and that's, one of the challenges we have is, uh, my sense is, there's way too many, uh, it, or it's more, it's getting more difficult for young people to see what an adult should look like. Like an adult should look like an adult. They should act like an adult. They should talk like an adult. They should, because there's young people looking at them and trying to figure out what should I do? become what should i look like what should i act like set an example right yep. so you know so to i look at it to for, for an, an adult to blame everybody oh that was the worst call. that's what a kid would do that's not what an adult should do so even you know i know it's pain maybe it is a bad call maybe it is but for you but they're human they are human and to blame it. Although I saw a lot of bad calls at this year's state tournament, I just got to say, human or not. No comment. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, for, but, but that's important for me as a coach that I should not be coming back in the wrestling room after and saying, oh yeah, that, all that does is it builds in excuses. That, into that the, false. That right, false I that. want them to take on the responsibility. responsibility. I should have been better prepared. I shouldn't have put myself in that position. Yeah. I should have, just like you had mentioned before. Yeah. 
All right, Dave. Well, listen, this has been awesome. This is a two-part Dave Kroll <laughs> podcast with me, Bob Matthews. Thank you so much again to uh, Dave for putting up with me for an entire afternoon. <laughs> and uh, please join me in a couple weeks now because we'll have Dave two weeks in a row <laughs> when we talk to uh, more of your favorite wrestlers, coaches, and uh, maybe one of these days, Brad Wilson and Tom Hausnick, and we'll find out their views on things. And I'd like to thank my executive producer, Kevin Hardy, for his help with this production. Enjoy the rest of your week or day or night. And remember, never let anyone take you down.